sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. We want to look at this psalm this afternoon and um, see what we can glean from this very instructive psalm, Psalm 51. And we're not left to speculate as to the background of this particular psalm, because as we learn from this superscription or heading, it is a psalm of David, and it was written when Nathan, the prophet, went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. That's what we find in the superscription, and the whole account of David's sins and his having been eventually confronted by the prophet Nathan is recorded in Second Samuel 11, verse 1, to chapter 12 and verse 25. David's downward spiritual slide began the day when he should have been out in battle alongside his general and lieutenants, but chose to remain at home. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 to 4, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And of course, you know the rest of the story. David saw Bathsheba bathing and he fell into lust, and he fell into the sin of adultery. He eventually fell into the sin of murder, and other sins compounded. And in what follows, we learn that having heard that Bathsheba was with child, David engineered a plan to have her husband Uriah killed in battle. The plan was to have his general Joab assign Uriah to the most dangerous place in the battle where he could easily be killed. And to what must have been David's sense of relief, the plan worked. And what was David's next act? Second Samuel eleven twenty six twenty seven tells us that Bathsheba's time of mourning, when her time of mourning had ended, the word of God says in 2 Samuel, 26, 2 Samuel 11, 26, 27, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And here's what the narrator says, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, roughly a year had passed and if Psalm 32 verses 3 and 4 pen, was penned in connection with the after effects of his terrible deeds as sin of adultery, sin of murder, then we get some idea as to the overwhelming, chastising conviction, the misery, the agony of soul the Lord had brought upon David. 
For in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4, we read, David wrote these words. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as as the heat of summer. It appears that even with the great distress he was going through, the stirrings of conviction in his heart, God convicting him of his sins, David had not repented. And we can say that because by the time we get to Second Samuel chapter 12, in which the prophet Nathan confronts him concerning his murder, concerning his adultery, Bathsheba had already born a child, so roughly a year had passed without David repenting of his sins. And Nathan, we know, told David the story of a stolen lamb. You know, David was confronted by the prophet Nathan, who told him the story about a lamb that was stolen. And when David heard this report, David was filled with anger, and he says, that man deserves to die. And the prophet, as some would say, with his bony fingers pointed right at David and he says, you are the man. David came under conviction. And David confessed how that he had sinned against the Lord. And here in Psalm 51, we have then David's posture of contrition and prayer of confession. A man after God's own heart, David, was guilty of high crimes. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of adultery. And by his own response to Nathan, in terms of the story that Nathan told him, David was deserving of death because David looked at it and said, David said, that man deserved to die. David was actually writing and declaring his own punishment. Murder, the willful taking of innocent life, was a crime which demanded the death of the murderer. So too was adultery, a crime that was worthy of death, the death penalty, as Deuteronomy chapter 22 and verse 22 clearly tells us. And so because there was no sacrifice for the sin of murder, because there was no sin for the sacrifice of, adu- of adultery, David, we would say, was in a very serious predicament. Convicted not by a human court, but by the living God, the Lord, the judge of all the earth. What in the world would David do? What could David do? Well, he really could do nothing but cast himself, cast himself on the mercy and grace of God, which was precisely what he did. And here in verse 1, he calls out to the Lord. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is God in grace withholding from us our just deserved punishment. And in his doing so, he does so not on the basis of any kind of payment we make to him, not on the basis of any kind of penance we render to him, penance so-called. And praise God for his unfailing mercy, because were it not for his unfailing mercy, we, you and I, would have long ago been all wiped out by his wrath, his just wrath. 
Psalm 51 has been aptly termed the penitent psalm. It is a prayer of one who has come face to face with the darkness and ugliness of their sins before the holy and righteous God of heaven. It is the heartfelt, contrite cry of a backslidden heart, a backslidden believer who desires, who earnestly longs for the forgiving grace of God. And here in this psalm, we have one of the clearest and most expressive portions of Scripture, the subject of forgiveness, the subject of forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins. And while this psalm highlights the richness of God's forgiving mercy, while it highlights the richness of God's forgiving grace toward the penitent sinner, it also calls attention to the heinousness and hideousness of sin. We want to consider two things this afternoon concerning sin. First of all, we want to consider what our sin is to God. This psalm speaks eloquently concerning what our sin, your sins, and mine are to God. As David dealt with his sins before God, in verses 1 to 5, he made some of the most insightful and revealing declarations not only regarding his sins, but regarding sin in general. In the first place, as he made confession to the Lord, David spoke of his transgressions. His transgressions. Notice in verses 1 and 3 the word transgression. And the Hebrew word there for transgression speaks of open revolt. It speaks of utter defiance, utter defiant rebellion against an authority. And the image evoked here behind this word transgression is the idea of someone brazenly, defiantly stepping across prohibited bounds to have his or her own way. This was precisely what David did. This precisely describes all the terrible acts of David when he willingly, knowingly committed adultery, when he willingly, knowingly sent Uriah in battle for the express purpose of having him killed. These were blatant acts of rebellion, of transgression, of utter defiance of God's authority upon his life. All that he did were essentially acts of rebellion, acts of revolt against God. As transgression, then sin is a brazen, defiant rejection of God and his will. Please note, please be reminded that even though it might seem innocent, even though some might call it a picadillo, much ado about nothing, whenever you and I sin, especially when we sin knowingly, deliberately, that is, in the eyes of God, rebellion, transgression, as David puts it. Secondly, as he made confession to God, Notice in verses 2 and 5 that David characterizes offense as iniquity. Iniquity. And the Hebrew word avon connotes moral perversity. It refers to an inner moral and spiritual condition of crookedness. David is confessing not just the fact that what he did was perverse, but he is confessing that at heart he was morally crooked, he was morally perverse, that he was all twisted and distorted. How true it is that sin is not just a matter of what we do, but a matter of what we are. That sin is not simply a matter of wrongdoing, but sin is a matter of wrong being. 
Iniquity describes that inner state of the heart, that inner state of heart and mind, where when the sinner performs acts of sins, does acts of sin, he or she is acting crookedly. He or she is acting perversely in the eyes of God. Indeed, in verse 5, he confesses that this morally twisted condition of his was inherited at birth because he says there in verse 5, I was brought forth, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Notice David is not saying here that his mother had him out of wedlock. That's not what he means when he says, I was born in iniquity. He did not mean that his mother conceived him out of wedlock. He was not saying that the act of conception and the act of bringing him into the world was a sinful act. The point he was making was that at conception, he inherited a sin nature. And he said this not to excuse sins he had committed, not to mitigate the guilt of his sins. He said this, rather, to confess his inherent sinfulness and fallenness before God. David is saying, look, God, This that I have done is only an outworking of my inward corruption, my inward crookedness, my inner perversity. And then thirdly, as he made confession to the Lord, David acknowledged his offense against God as sin, as sin. We see that in verses 3 to 5, as well as verse 9, the Hebrew word kata speaks of missing the mark or missing the way. It was a word that was used, for example, in Judges chapter 20, verse 16, of the left-handed Benjamite slingers who could sling a stone, the Bible says, at a hair without missing. It's a word that is used in Proverbs chapter 19, verse 2, in connection with one making haste with his feet, missing the way. What is sin? Sin is missing the mark of God's standard of holiness, of righteousness. And the point is, in sinning through the various things that he did, David missed the mark of God's will concerning moral integrity and moral purity. He missed the mark of God's will concerning the sanctity of human life when he killed Uriah. He missed the mark of God's will concerning personal purity when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And what's alarming is that it had, got not, had not God intervened in David's life, had not God stopped him in his tracks, David would have kept missing and missing and missing. He would have kept falling away, falling away from God. But yet God in grace and mercy took hold of David and turned him. Praise be to God, child of God that he was, David could not have gone on indefinitely. Sinning and sinning and sinning. Why? Because a true child of God, even though he or she might fall into sin and fall grievously, will not remain in sin. In fact, 1 John 3, verses 8 through 10 make very clear that the child of God cannot continue in sin because John says there, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil, he says, has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, 
and he cannot keep sinning because he has been born of God. Here's what John says in verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So the very fact that God took a hold of David, the very fact that God arrested him in his tracks, the very fact that David came face to face with his sins before God suggests that David was a true child of God. And we know that the Lord had to have been convicting David of his sins so as to bring him to repentance because David, notice verse 3, was impelled to confess. Here's what he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. The true child of God comes face to face with the convicting reality of sin. What sin is in relation to God. My sin is ever before me, he says. And this is the confession of a man who is troubled by his sins. This is the confession of a man who is under deep conviction with respect to the sins he had committed against the holy and righteous God. Evidently, Uriah's death had so haunted him. He was without rest of soul. He was without peace of heart and mind. No peace. And fourthly, as he made confession to the Lord, David acknowledged all that all the wrongs, wrongs he had done were ultimately sins against God. David recognized, he acknowledged the fact that whereas he had wronged his own conscience, whereas he had wronged Uriah in murdering him, whereas he had wronged Bathsheba in sleeping with her, whereby he had wronged her family, whereby he had wronged the state, ultimately of all persons he had wronged, of all persons he had sinned against, was God himself. Let me say this, we, whenever you and I sin, we affect not just ourselves, we affect not just those around us. Here's the point. We ultimately sin against God. Joseph recognized that. Remember when Potiphar's wife was inveigling him to sin? What did he say? He says, how can I do this great wickedness? Notice he did not say, how then can I do this great wickedness against my conscience? He did not say, how then can I do this great wickedness against Pharaoh? He says, how can I do this great wickedness against God? You see, whenever we see sin in its true light, sin is always appearing to be hideous, and sin is seen for what it is. Sin is seen as an offense against the Holy and righteous God. So first of all, David came to see that in the eyes of God, that which he had done was evil. You notice that in verse 4. So we have looked at what our sin is to God. Now let's consider secondly what our sin does to us. What our sin does to us. And I want to bring to your attention, first of all, from this passage, that sin defiles us. Sin defiles us. It renders us dirty, it renders us filthy, it renders us polluted. Hence the need, the great need, for sins to be blotted out. Notice in verse 1, David pleaded for the Lord to blot out his transgressions and cleanse him. Blot out, that word means to expunge, it means to wipe clean. In Genesis chapter 7 verse 23, the Hebrew word that's used, the Hebrew root word 
is the word that's used here in Psalm 51, and in Genesis 7.23, it is rendered destroyed. What was David saying? Lord, destroy the records. Wipe my slate clean, wipe my record clean. Sin has defiled me, sin has corrupted me, sin has made me dirty. I feel dirty, Lord. Expunge my records, destroy the records. It's not good for me, and it is displeasing to you. Sin defiles us. And notice in verse 2, as a defiling, contaminating power, sin brings about the need for washing and cleansing. Look at verse 2. There David prays to the Lord. Here's what he says. Wash me thoroughly. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. Because sin renders us dirty and defiled, we need to be purged from it. Verse 7, here's what David says. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Notice that in addition to asking the Lord to again wash him, David petitioned the Lord to purge him. It says, though he's asking the Lord for a double dip, wash me, wash me, purge me. I'm so dirty, I'm so filthy, I need not just washing, I need to be purged, is what he's suggesting. And it's significant that he should use the word, he should ask the Lord to purge him with hyssop because, you see, hyssop, if you remember back in, in Exodus, hyssop was used, it was a plant that was used, that was, it was dipped in the blood, the sacrificial lamb that was slain, it was applied to the doorposts, remember, when Israel was in danger of the angel of death, when the blood was applied, the angel would pass over and not kill the firstborn. Hyssop was also used in the ceremonial cleansing of a leper, as we see in Leviticus 14, 1 through 7. So in asking the Lord to purge him with hyssop, David's point that was this, that his sin had left him in an utterly contaminated condition from which he needed to be thoroughly purged. Sin defiles, but, defiles us. But secondly, notice in verse 5 that sin deforms us. Sin deforms us. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. The very word iniquity, as we saw earlier, connotes crookedness. It connotes moral deformity. You know, what he's saying here is, I was brought forth in an ill-shaped fashion. I was brought forth with a deformity. My life was out of sync and is out of sync with your design, with your will, with your purposes. I am morally and spiritually deformed and have been so from birth. Read Romans chapter 3, 11 through 18. We don't have time to read to it, but you'll see the extent of human depravity, of human deformity on account of sin. But notice thirdly, what does our sin do to us? Our sin not only defiles us, our sin not only deforms us, but our sin deafens us. It deafens us. It desensitizes us toward God. Look at verse 8. David asks the Lord, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. What does that suggest? His ears were closed. He had become desensitized to the presence of God, to the joy of the Lord, to the peace of God. 
And here's the point, my friend. That's what sin does to us. Sin deafens us. Sin desensitizes us to the word of God. One who is in sin no longer hears the word of God. And interestingly, when sin is cherished, when sin is harbored in one's life, the word of God teaches in in Psalm 66 verse 18 that God returns the favor. He also deafens his ears because the Bible tells us there in Psalm 66, 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Fourthly, look at what sin does to us. Verse 8, the B part of verse 8, sin dislocates our lives. Sin dislocates our lives because he prays there, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Whenever we are out of sync with God, whenever we have sinned against God, whenever those sins remain unconfessed, all kinds of brokenness, all kinds of dislocation occurs in our lives. Our family lives become out of sync. God can bring chastisement to the point where our family life is in a mess, our finances are in a mess. Why? Because sin brings about dislocation in our lives. And then notice verse 11. Where are we? Fifthly, not only does sin deafen us toward God, dislocates our lives, but sin disfellowships us from God. Sin disfellowships us from God. Here's what he says, verse 11. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is the prayer of a man who realizes a desperate situation to which his sin had brought him, his sin had given him this sense that God was distant, that God no longer cared about him. And you ask yourself, how would David have come to pray this prayer, take not your Holy Spirit away from me? Well, remember Saul, King Saul, he saw what happened to Saul. He saw how that the Spirit of God had departed from Saul. He saw the misery of Saul without the Spirit of God. And he saw the bitter end of Saul without the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God had left him. And David is saying, Lord, I don't want that to happen to me. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Uh, Brethren, here's the point. You and I need not pray that prayer as believers today. Even when you and I sin, here's the point. Even when you and I sin, we may even sin grievously. But the point is this, that God has promised. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, he will never leave us nor forsake us. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is there to abide with us forever. But I tell you something. There are some things that will leave us. Let me tell you some of the things that will leave us. The joy of God's salvation will be lost. Because that's what David is praying for. He's asking God to restore to him the joy of his salvation. We'll lose the joy of the Lord. We'll lose a sense of God's peace. We'll lose the privilege of God's hearing and answering our prayers. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2 plainly says this. Your iniquities have separated you from God so that he cannot hear. We will lose our fellowship with God, which can only be restored when we confess our sins to God, 1 John 1, 7-9. 
And with all this, we need to remember that we never, as children of God, whenever we sin, we sin carelessly, we sin flippantly, we never get away with sin. Why? Because God will see to it that we pay somehow. We always pay. If we do not confess or if we sin so grievously, God can so chastise us that we are greatly humbled. There's always a price to be paid for the seed that is sown We'll be read Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life and peace. And then finally, notice verses 8 and 12. Sin depresses us. Sin defiles us. Sin deadens us. It deadens us to the, fa- the voice of God. Sin disfellowships us from God, and you have been following what you have been saying. Sin depresses us, verses 8 and 12, because here's what David says. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. As we said earlier, here was a man whose conscience was severely haunted by all the evils he had committed. It made him feel horrible. It made him feel most miserable, such that he lost the joy of the Lord, the joy of communion with the Lord. No longer did he know the joy of prayer, the joy of God's presence. And he's begging God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Here's the thing. Sin will depress us. Sin indulged in will take us into dark depths where God may even appear to be distant. We begin to wonder whether we are truly saved. That's what sin will do to us. What then are the lessons we can take away this afternoon from this psalm? First of all, we notice that as great as David's sins were, praise God, they did not outweigh his mercy and his grace. As great as his sins were, transgressions, iniquity, as great as his sin of murder was, as great as his sin of adultery was, as great as his lies and his schemings were, the grace of God superabounded, as Paul would say. Praise God, his sins were all blotted out, they were washed away, they were purged, they were cleansed by the forgiving mercy and grace of God. And that's a promise to you and me today. For if we confess our sins, 1 John 1 verse 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, we learn from this psalm that in dealing with our sins before the Lord, not only must we come to know ourselves to have sinned against him, but we must also come clean with him. We must be honest before him. We must be honest before him in speaking of sins for what they are. Notice David did not try to use euphemism. He did not try to cosmetize his wrongdoings. He described them for what they were. He characterized them for what they were. He says, my iniquities, my deformity, my perversity. He says, my transgressions, in other words, my rebellion, my defiance of your will. And we must, in truth, confess those sins with an intention to turn from them. Note what he said, verse 3, For I know my transgressions. What is that honesty, openness? 
Note also what he says in 6a, verse 6a, surely you, you desire truth in the inward parts. That's honesty. Coming clean with God. You desire truth in the inward parts. Here it was, his intention was not just to be forgiven of sins, but to truly turn from them. He says, create in me, verse 10, a pure heart, O God, and renew a, right, a steadfast spirit within me. In effect, he was praying for God to do such a radical work, a radical work of renewal in his heart and life, such that his repentance would not be superficial, would not be fleeting, but lasting in its effects. Indeed, this desire of his is expressed in the B part of verse 12, where he asks the Lord to grant him a willing spirit to sustain him. In other words, Lord, forgive me and plant in me right desires that I will want to love you, I will want to serve you, and that by your grace I will be upheld so that I would not fall in sin again. Question this afternoon is this. What is your attitude towards sin? Whenever you sin, does it make you feel miserable? Or is it business as usual? I can't just confess, go on. It doesn't really matter. God is so gracious. No, 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 my friends. A true born-again believer in Christ cannot be comfortable in sin, cannot take joy in sin. Whenever he or she sins, there will be the convicting presence and power of the Spirit of God. That person cannot be comfortable in sin. Well, what of those who are despairing? What of those who feel miserable? Lord, have I been truly forgiven? And the wonderful news is this, that when God forgives, he forgives and he forgets. Isn't that marvelous? I know it is. May God grant that these words would find lodgment in our hearts for his name's sake. Amen.